Who's the new kid? In the spirit of award season, Dave and I will be sharing our favorite new characters that we've met over the course of the past year. While they may not have exactly made their debut in the past 12 months, their impact on our journey deserves a hearty commendation nonetheless. Episode 91, The Byword, begins now. Welcome in, nerds, to another exclusive episode of the Nerd by Word podcast, the only podcast that walks the narrow tightrope of enough Batman already, and oh my god, is it March 4th yet? Dave and Chris are here once more to whisk you away on another nerd-filled adventure, complete with characters that we've met and fallen in love with over the past year. But first, it's time for... Dave, what the shell is going on? You know, I don't know what to tell you because we just spoke about this last episode. We are prophets. We are prophets. Yeah, about (sighs) about she who shall not be named. Venus de Milo, uh, the much maligned character that was added, the fifth turtle, the fifth female turtle, to um, TMNT, The Next Mutation, a short-lived life action series from what, like the late 90s or something? And lo and behold, she who shall not be named is making a comeback after 24 years on the sidelines. Uh, it, uh, the character is now set to uh, return in TMNT number 127 from IDW Publishing, written by Sophie Campbell and illustrated by Pablo Tunica. And so apparently Campbell has been, uh, after reintroducing this character for some time, saying in a press release, I've been trying to make a Venus comeback happen for a while, and I almost can't believe it's finally happening. Uh, In the same press release, um, editor Tom Waltz added, It's been amazing to watch Sophie Campbell continue our long-running TMNT series with such careful consideration and commitment to the kind of character-driven storylines that have always been the foundation for what makes all things Turtles so beloved and eternal. And now she's crafted a clever plan to introduce a character from the past that many thought would never see the light of day again. She's doing it in fine fashion, continuing the IDW tradition of making the old feel both familiar and refreshing all at once, just in time for our big Armageddon game event, no less. Now, the the funny thing is that this character, as we have ourselves hinted at many times on this show, has been uh, much maligned over the years. Uh, It was sort of an extra character added to the very short-lived 1997 uh, Ninja Turtles, The Next Mutation, uh, sort of retconned in as a, a fifth turtle that was exposed to the ooze and uh, basically was mistakenly left behind by Splinter. He t- took all the male turtles but left the female one behind, you know, because we know we know Splinter is a little uh, a little like that, I guess we could say. Um, and really, uh, most did not like this character very much, sort of a, a poor retcon and, and just a very oddly designed character too. Who knew that uh, that turtles had, in fact, female breasts, uh, human breasts? So uh, 
made the design a little awkward. Uh, but, but, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> um, now, of course, uh, in the meantime, we have in the IDW series a, a new character that Chris has been uh, r- ranting and raving about for some time now, the female turtle, Jenica, who started out as a human that was mutated into a turtle. Um, so, you know... On the one hand, it's really interesting to see this character make a comeback. On the other hand, based on some of the uh, concept art that's been released, it seems to me like this uh, this version of Venus de Milo is going to be significantly different from what we've seen in the past. There seems to be some kind of technological undercurrent going on there, uh, some kind of... Uh, powers perhaps there's she's seen in one of the pieces of art uh, with blue flames in her hands that shape a yin yang um she has oddly like you know shaped metallical protrusions in in her shell um you know this may end up being venus de milo in name only um there's definitely going to be some significant changes to the character uh here's hoping that they're able to make uh, as uh, they say in the press release, something uh, old, both familiar and fresh, because Venus de Milo was, you know, at least in this TMNT's fan, a, a, a mess of a character in her original uh, incarnation. Chris, as our resident TMNT expert, oh. what is your estimation of this news? I, I'm just blown away because I literally, uh, the piece that I made reference to that I was writing for Comics Bookcase, I sent in. Uh, my my rough draft, my first draft of that piece that should be premiering here pretty soon, maybe at the beginning of next month. And then I switch over to my news feed, and here is Venus de Milo, who the entire introductory paragraph of my piece was about. And like all of the sins of that creation, it, it's just wild to me. But, um, you know, at this point, I've run out of superlatives and adjectives to describe my feelings about this ongoing series um the seamless handoff to sophie sophie campbell you know um and and the entire creative team the arts out of this world uh you know Rhonda pattison does some great work um uh joni nishijima campbell does a lot of the art uh herself as well I, i i absolutely just love everything about this and and here's why i am i'm actually really excited about this um the the ability to take these much maligned or dunked on factors of the fandom throughout the history um look no further than toka and razor like that was that's one of the biggest uh criticisms that people have for the second one is we didn't get bebop and rocksteady we got toka and razor there's these cheap knockoffs but they did um, a, a masterful job of bringing Toka and Razor into this ongoing series, albeit for just a few issues. But like, so if they can do that with Toka and Razor, why can't they do it with Venus de Milo? I think for me, the reason that Venus de Milo, even as a young child, was so upsetting was because just the idea of it, the concept of it was cool. It was just like there was no depth to the character. There was no real ideas or ingenuity behind it. It was just, uh, you know, it was very clear, you know, as an adult now you can look at it and see they're trying to sell action figures. They're trying to get female fans, little girls buying the toys and everything too. So they were like, well, we got four males. We're getting all boys. Let's get some girls in here to buy toys too. So it was just a very, very cheap ploy. Famously, in my research, um, famously, 
Peter Layer, the co-creator, absolutely hated the character, swore off everything to do with the character. Um, when Image actually, this is interesting as well, when Image had the comic book rights, there was a no girl turtles mandate from uh, publishing. So that was interesting to find out. And, and just to see how far we've come to the point where I'm, I'm really excited to see how Sophie Campbell and company do this because um, there, there was, there was just a lot, a lot of potential that was just completely just eschewed. And it almost, that's one of the criticisms I think of, of Silk as well. Um, you know, a character that you love, Dave, uh, bitten by the same spider as Peter, Venus, the same ooze, but left behind for some reason. So there's there's a lot of criticisms left there, but I'm I'm very excited about what's going to happen. Yeah, and I will say the the introductory um, just to, just to go off uh, you know your your cue there, you know the introductory stuff that they did with Silk and Amazing Spider Man was not very good, but once they spun her off into her own series, there was a lot to love there, and I think I continue to love a lot of her solo stuff. Uh, just a very interesting. Um, dynamic that that character has with some of the other characters around her, particularly in her most recent series, her uh, interactions with with J. Jonah Jameson are are actually absolutely fun and hilarious, and so very different of a dynamic than what you know Peter Parker Spider Man has um, with that character. So I, yeah, I I like Silk a great deal, although I will freely admit that the the introductory storyline that brought her into the fold was not. Um, not very good but once you look past that i think a, a very cool character and i'm really hoping that you know this return for venus de milo shakes out the same way that we have you know a character that came from kind of a weird place but a talented uh, team of writer and artist is able to take this and and really make this character something special and unique all right chris um or should i say chris <laughs> what have you got for news <laughs> Well, a few weeks ago, Trekkers Worldwide uh, were stunned to hear the announcement that J.J. Abrams and company were indeed moving forward with the fourth installment in the Kelvin timeline uh, film franchise uh, with the core cast returning, all of them. Add to the list of the parties stunned by Paramount's phaser the aforementioned core cast themselves. According to The Hollywood Reporter, most, if not all, of the teams surrounding stars Chris Pine, Zachary Quinto, Carl Urban, Simon Pegg, Zoe Saldana, and John Cho were completely caught off guard by the announcement. Most fans had given up hope of a continuation of the series after contract talks uh, stalled way back in 2018. But with the recent surge in popularity of the Trek property, thanks in no small part to the success of hits like Discovery, Picard, Lower Decks, and Prodigy, Paramount and Viacom are certainly feeling more emboldened to make the push towards the big screen once more. The studio is reportedly hoping to finalize contract negotiations as soon as possible and begin shooting by the end of the year with the goal of making that December 2023 release window. Dave, you and I both ride for this franchise. It's it's kind of a divisive, polarizing one for the Trek fandom. Are you excited for this? I, I really am. Um, you know, presupposing that they didn't put the cart in before the horse and are actually able to nail down all the principal players, since apparently um, they didn't even have like contracts, you know, locked in place. So basically, they've they've just entered negotiations with Chris Pine, since you know his Captain Kirk is sort of the linchpin of the whole franchise. Let's hope that they can lock everybody in the place. Um, you know, it, it this franchise is very interesting to me in a lot of ways. Um, 
on the one hand, I, you know, absolutely adore Shatner and Nimoy and, and that whole original crew. But on the other hand, to me, oftentimes, I feel like that crew, uh, Kirk and co is sort of quintessentially what Star Trek is those relationships. And most Star Trek shows have not been able um, to recapture that sort of dynamic. I think the one that and you know already what I'm going to say. The only one that got as good of, of, of character relationships as the original Star Trek is ultimately Deep Space Nine. But, uh, you know, Next Generation didn't have this kind of you know, tight-knit relationship group with such interesting dynamics because, well, you know, we, we know that Gene Roddenberry didn't want, you know, inter-crew conflict because, you know, all the humans are perfect. Um and, and any potential in Voyager for that kind of conflict was quickly swept under the rug. Um, so, you know, a lot of the shows are lacking, you know, that kind of, I don't know, that, that little bit of extra something, the crew dynamic, the, the relationships, which are, you know, based on friendship and love, but also, you know, uh, very different, strong differences of opinion. And, and, and I think for that, I always love the, the, the original crew in particular. And so I I was a big fan of the uh, the first Star Trek remake. I was a little a little less of a fan of the second go around into darkness because no matter how often they said that they weren't doing Khan, it was very clear they were doing Khan. And I think the remix of that character kind of fell a little flat. I think what made Wrath of Khan uh, so very good in a lot of ways um, was simply the fact that it, it there was a long history there. You know, they were relying on on a storyline from the original show and there had been time that went by and there was a real um, natural uh, animosity between Khan and Kirk based on their shared history. And without that shared history, I think that second movie fell a little flat for me, but then, you know, I, I will freely admit uh, Star Trek uh, beyond there, uh, that, that third entry felt very Star Trek-y suddenly, you know, like it, it really tapped into something. And I was excited to see the franchise continue and was a little sad that the whole thing uh, sort of fell apart. So I'm, I'm, I write for this, man. I'm hoping that they, they have a good, you know, solid script or at the very least a good solid treatment and they know where they're going with this. Um, because I, I love these characters, um, you know, whether recast or not, there's something really special about this group of characters and how they interact with each other. And I just love to see it. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and I, I love that it's, it's almost like an, well, it is an alternate universe. And I think really, it, it's really hard to recapture some of that same magic and they somehow were able to do so, I think with, um, with the cast here and, and the cast is, their chemistry with one another, particularly between um, Zachary Quinto and Chris Pine, is just magnificent. I love their back and forth. A uh, little bit more animosity than we saw in the original series, but I think it. I think it's for the better, and I think it's just like a fun reimagining, almost like a what if, um, if you will. So I, I, I really enjoy this like core group of people. I, I, I enjoyed Into Darkness. Full disclosure, I watched that. I'm late to the Trek fandom. So I saw Into Darkness before Wrath of Khan, but even going back and revisiting, I think I'm such a fan of Benedict Cumberbatch's acting chops that I'm kind of willing to gloss over some of the criticisms of that. Um, So I I do still enjoy it, but um, I'm just reminded I'd never watched Beyond. I still have not watched Beyond, and uh, that's something I need to remedy really quickly. 
I recommend it. It felt a lot more Star Trek-y than, than the other two movies. A little less spectacle and a little more, you know, introspection. Um, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. There was still plenty of spectacle, but there was a really good story there that I found worked really well for this crew. So I was, I was pleased with that. Plus, they had some references to, like, uh, uh, Enterprise era, you know, which I thought was interesting. So uh, there's, there, there was some cool stuff in there. But, you know, I'm, go- I'm going to go ahead and go full sacrilege for a second, if you don't mind. I wished, in a lot of ways, that Disney had the cojones to do what what uh, what Paramount did here with Star Trek and do that with Star Wars, and that is go full hardcore recast, recast their original characters, and and give us some further adventures of of Luke Han and Leia in that in between time between the original trilogy and the sequel trilogy. Like I would I would go for that, man. I would go for that. If the casting is done well and the writing is good, I would love to see more of that dynamic because I I will say that even if you're looking at the sequel trilogy, which has things that to, to go forward and, and things that didn't go so well, and even if you look at the prequel trilogy, which had good things, Obi-Wan Kenobi for the most part, and, and a whole bunch of bad stuff too, I don't think any relationships in Star Wars ever surpassed the core three of the original trilogy either. Luke, Han, Leia, the way they interact with each other and stuff in, in, in that original trilogy. I would love to see more of that. And if that requires a recast, I think there are plenty of really good possibilities out there. I mean, we've already recast Han Solo. Um, and I think the acting performance was fine. Uh, you know, the, the, the movie had other problems with it, but I, I think, you know, let's be bold and, and at least give it a shot and just go full recast, you know, as, as good as the technology is of, you know, de-aging, deep faking Mark Hamill oh. there, um, it's, it's not the same thing as having an actor act, you know? And so, yeah, I, I would love if they would do this. I, I'll, I'll just say it. And I know there's going to be a lot of Star Wars fan like, you know, sacrilege, but but I really don't care. Like, I, it worked with Star Trek, and I would be interested to see if it can work with Star Wars. <clears throat> I, I totally agree. I Unfortunately, I think it will never happen. I think they are too afraid of exactly that. They're too afraid of the outrage. They are too afraid of the fans that are beholden to the past. And I really wish that was the case because... The CGI was markedly better this time around, but it's it's because they hired that YouTube guy. But it's it's just disturbing. It's I'm sorry, it's disturbing, and I'm spoilers, but I'm glad he didn't show up again past that one episode because it was just like it just made me a little bit queasy, like it was almost too good. The other problem, of course, is that you know the voice is not de-aged; it's synthesized. You know, it's a it's a it's a fake voice. Yeah. Um, I read a little bit about how they did that, and they basically fed a whole bunch of you know old Mark Hamill lines from that time period into a uh-huh. computer, and then have the computer basically do the voice. And I think that accounts for some of the lifeless delivery that we're getting there, because yeah. it is literally a lifeless delivery. And I think you know we 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 can't if you're going to try to continue telling stories in a franchise that has been around for decades. You have to be willing to be bold and do some recasting. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you won't be able to push forward. Look at you know a show like like Doctor Who, which has been around since 1963. The whole reason that that show has been able to continue at all is because of the consistent recasting. And they they went so far as to you know write a mechanism into the actual story to make the recasting plausible, so they can continue. You know, and I think at some point, you cannot tell me that Star Wars fans especially, you know, 
old school Star Wars fans like myself wouldn't line up around the block if they would announce that they're they're bringing in a new cast and they're doing basically a version of the Heir to the Empire trilogy. And basically saying, okay, this is the story of what happened between the, 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 the original trilogy and the sequel trilogy. And you get to see these characters sort of, you know, at their height, at their best. I, I would be first in line. I'll freely admit I would be all about something like that. I would love to see Luke Han and Leia take on Grand Admiral Thrawn. Like that, that, that is my jam right there. But it, it requires some boldness. And yeah. let's be honest, I don't think you'll ever please Star Wars fans because most of them are... Uh, Bitter old guys living in the basement, I think. And it's just, it's sad how the Star Wars fandom has fractured into a bunch of bitter old people when uh, there's so much good content being produced right now for fans. So I'm there for it. And I'm and I'm there for the Star Trek sequel too. I'm looking forward to it, man. I this We may have just answered this question, but I'm curious to get your opinion on this. Why do you think, and I was super excited when J.J. Abrams came on to do the sequel trilogy and it was announced because he had done so well, I thought, with with Trek. Why do you think, at least in our opinion, it works so well with Star Trek, but not so much with Star Wars? I think that when they were making the Star Trek movies, what they're really doing is they're not they're not making a trilogy. They're not making something um, interconnected, right? Uh, every every movie is sort of standalone, and so uh, the planning is all internal. Uh, so if you if you know JJ comes around and has to hand it off to another director, they're just going to tell a very different kind of Star Trek story, and it's still going to work. It doesn't have to connect in meaningful ways to the previous movie. Is what I'm saying. And what we ended up with, I think, with the Star Wars trilogy is is first of all that uh, there there was no plan, but it was you know touted as a trilogy, which means there had to be meaningful story threads that go through all three movies. And I think with the handoff between directors, it just didn't work because they didn't have an overarching plan that each director followed. And I think the other problem is that it's very much that, uh, you know, recasting thing. You know, we have all the original characters back that are so beloved with good actors doing those characters justice. Whereas in Star Wars, we had to get a whole bunch of new characters that had to be introduced while still trying to have the legacy characters around to sort of hand off, you know, the the the, the baton, so to speak. And I think it's just that they ended up being two very different beasts. I think if you would have... If you would have given J.J. Abrams a movie and said, okay, you're going to recast Luke Han and Leia and you're going to do a story five years after Return of the Jedi and and you have your trilogy there with these characters and their continuing story and you don't have to introduce any new characters or reinvent the wheel or anything, I think he would have probably delivered a significantly better Star Wars movie and we might have gotten a significantly better trilogy overall. Do you think the episodic nature of Trek versus the saga storytelling of Star Wars gives it that advantage as well? Yes, I think that's absolutely one of the big advantages of Trek. You know, I mean, technically, you could have a different director come in for every Trek movie and just completely make a new story, no problem. I mean, if you look at, like, the history of Star Trek movies, the only time there was any meaningful, you know, story threads going from movie to movie, it was basically um, Wrath of Khan, um, Search for Spock, and The Voyage Home. That that basically is the closest thing that Star Trek ever came to, you know, a trilogy. And even those movies are all very different from each other. With I love The Whale movie. I, the Whale movie might be my favorite Star Trek movie. I love that movie. 
it is it is so very Star Trek and how it plays <laughs> with time travel, how it plays with con- how it comments on contemporary society. Um, it, it's it's the most quintessential Star Trek movie. It's less about action and more about you know just a really solid story that that really has something to say. Um, so yeah, you know, I I just I keep coming back to this notion that a recast could work if if you do it right just because it worked for Star Trek, and I I cannot see. Um, I cannot see the majority of Star Wars movies, Star Wars fans, not enjoying um, movies if the casting is done well that tell the continuing adventures of Luke Han and Leia. I think there would be totally a market for that kind of trilogy. I guess Sebastian Stan is literally right there. You're not kidding, and we already have a Han Solo. All we need now is a Leia. How about uh, her daughter, Billy Lord? How amazing would that be? That would be awesome. Yeah. Um, I want to say that, ironically, I, I've read an article, uh, it might have been a couple of years ago, where um, Millie Bobby Brown actually said she would love to play a young Leia in a movie. And she's actually getting up there in her age now. She just is like 18, 19 now or something, that she could conceivably conceivably pull something like that off. And I think it's fair to say that the lady has acting chops. So uh, Yeah, she's the only human I didn't want to die in the Godzilla movies. So. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. <laughs> the, the only human that came across as human, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> All right, that wraps up an extended edition of Nerd News. When we come back with the byword big talk, we're just we're just bursting at the seams with characters we love. So stick around. All right, we're back for this week's byword. And we're a very character-oriented show. We love strong characters. Um, and so uh, we came up with the idea of, you know, we've been reading a lot. We've been consuming a lot of media, watching a lot of shows. Over the past year, who are the new people? Not necessarily new publication-wise. Maybe they've been around for a couple of years, a couple of decades even. That we've really gotten to know over the past year or so that we really just absolutely love and is our tradition. We each pick three and we're just going to gush about them. So, Dave, I've never heard of this person at all. Yeah, well, uh, until very recently, neither had I. It's sort of a very odd situation where, you know, you end up signing up for DC Universe Infinite and start reading a whole bunch of stuff. And lo and behold, you come across a series that looks really interesting. Um, so uh, Manhunter, uh, specifically the Catherine Spencer version of Manhunter, uh, is probably one of my new favorite characters. And I'm going to talk more about the series in general um, as my nerd commendation. Spoilers! But uh, I, I really want to talk a little bit about the character. So uh, Kate Spencer is like the fourth or fifth character in uh, the DC universe to carry the Manhunter title. Uh, all of these various characters have, you know, completely different backgrounds and origin stories. It's kind of all over the place, really. Um, but in uh, 2004, uh, writer Mark Andreco and uh, artist Jesus Saiz, Saiz, I'm, I'm horrible with pronunciations of non-German names, as you all know, <laughs> um, they created uh, Catherine Spencer a uh, district attorney in Los Angeles who becomes uh, disillusioned 
with uh, the fact that these superpowered uh, villains keep getting put out on the street and goes into evidence locker and gets a whole bunch of equipment that has been confiscated from various heroes and villains over the years, puts on a suit, a mask, grabs a staff, and hunts down the villain Copperhead and kills him. And from there on, uh, builds a reputation as the Manhunter, a uh, superhero that, although usually doesn't kill, is not above killing if it's the only way to get justice. So she is not, you know, um, she's not like a, a Punisher kind of character. She's more of a, if, if, you know, there is no other way to stop this guy, I'm willing to go that extra mile. She's a very, very complex and interesting character. You know, um, in in an age where so many characters that are introduced are always like really young or teens or, you know, we have to have Spidey, for example, always be single. Uh, Catherine Spencer is a, is, is a woman. Uh, she's fully fleshed out. She has, has a past. She has a, an ex-husband. She has a, a son, a young son. And she shares custody. Um she is a chain smoker who's constantly trying to quit smoking in the early issues, but keeps having to pick it back up. And as the story progresses, she realizes she actually has some surprising uh, ties to past superheroes, specifically the World War II era superheroes. Um, but through all that, she's just a very hard-edged character. You know, I mean, in the courtroom scenes, uh, she's just cold as ice, and and the other lawyers always fear her. Even when she messes up, she usually is able to to kind of squeeze a win out of it. Uh, and as a superhero, she's not exactly one of the quippy nature. She's very very hard nosed and gets the job done. She's just an incredibly tough tough character. Um, and I, I absolutely adore this character for that. And it's unbelievable to me that this character had, a, you know, her own ongoing series that lasted for several years. Then the series was canceled. And, and apparently uh, this character has just disappeared off the face of the earth because apparently, like, she does not appear anywhere else. And, and it, it kind of blows my mind. Because it's just such a fantastic character. It's so well written. Uh, the art is fantastic on this series. Um, and she's just absolutely, I don't know, it's just enrapturing as a character. You just want to constantly read more of her. So DC, what in the world are you thinking? You have this fantastic character there and poof, she's gone. I mean, what the crap, Chris? <laughs> yeah, I get I'm, get, I'm getting some serious daredevil vibes, you know, as, as someone who swore up and down they were going to law school and then, you know, changed majors in college. But I, I was a sucker for all those John Grisham novels as a kid. I read every single one of them. Like I've always, I love legal thrillers. I've, that's always been my cup of tea. So stuff like daredevil has always been fascinating to me um so this is definitely a character that i am very intrigued in but i hate like that the fact that like they're out of publication now and then you know you have something so strong and then they just vanish into thin air like just wild and in, and in typical me fashion i enjoyed reading these adventures on uh dc universe infinite so much that i picked up the trade paperback so uh if you need a good read <laughs> I, i'm more than willing to play library and check them out yeah. to you i think i think you'd really enjoy this character yeah Chris. for sure 
Odd Chris, who is your first new character that you've encountered over the last year that you really enjoy? Okay, so pun fully intended, but it looks like we're on the same page because my nerd commendation is going to be getting more in depth of this character and where I met them um, today. So stay tuned for that. But my new favorite character in all of comics um, is Soraya Kadir. Known by her mutant code name as Dust, or even more recently as Congregation um, in X Men Onslaught Revelation. Um, she is a woman from Afghanistan, a very devout Muslim. She wears the traditional niqab. Um, was created in December of 2002 by um, Grant Morrison and an artist that shall not be named. And in the new X-Men volume one, and it's just a fascinating character. You know, I've always um, been intrigued and fascinated with cultures around the world that uh, specifically those that are different than mine. I see myself in the mirror every day. I know my day-to-day life. I know, you know, all about that. But like, I'm always interested in getting different perspectives, different points of view. And so she was actually kidnapped and sold into slavery as a child until she was rescued by Wolverine and Phantom X. Um, and then she becomes, um, in, in my nerd commendation today, the second volume of New X-Men. She's one of those core students um, in that group. And, you know, as you could imagine, it's quite a culture shock coming to the United States and living in a different culture and how she interacts with other people in a respectful manner. um, Despite her devout faith is just truly fascinating to watch and such an admirable character, you know, much is much love is given to Nightcrawler. um, One of our faves for being a devout Catholic and being a man of faith and what have you. But, um, she is equally as fascinating in, in her own respective faith and just seeing that in, in a religion that is not my own um, is, is truly fascinating and seeing how she deals with the complexities of being a superhero and having not only that, she has this devout faith and this inner tranquility and peace, um, but then she has the mutant ability to turn into sand as dust would suggest and she can completely just flay the skin off of human beings leaving nothing but skeletal remains like there are scenes from new x-men volume two where um i i believe you encountered william striker and his purifiers with god loves man kills but this is yes. a, good, a good few decades later but they come back again and these bigoted clowns coming after her of course as as a muslim woman and she completely just leaves nothing but but bones uh, left because they are just completely uh, just destroyed by her. So having the kind of the duality of this calm, tranquil, tranquil, quiet person with this powerhouse, um, you know, power set is is uh, just fascinating to see the duality in that character. So I absolutely love her. She is going to be on the new team with Nightcrawler, um, with the Legionnaires uh, in this Krakoan era and and Arako in the the new planet Arako of Mars. Uh, that I'm very very excited to see what uh, new things come for this character. Yeah, once again, you're throwing a character at me from the X-Men franchise, and uh, you're going to end up making me having to read some of these old uh, X-Men series. Um, 
not that I've not you know read any X Men, but you know Morrison in particular has uh, has a special place in my heart, as you well know, particularly for his understanding of Superman. So uh, you know, if Morrison had his hand in the creation of this character, then I am definitely interested in learning more. All right, Dave. I I knew this one was going to come up, but it's an amazing character, and we should always take as much time as we can in an episode to rave about this character. Yeah, I, I will never get tired of talking about the best character that I have encountered over the last year or so, and that is, of course, Joe Mullen from uh, the far, from Far Sector and the Green Lantern franchise, uh, who has literally now become my all-time favorite Green Lantern by you know a, a country mile at this point. I, I adored uh, the Far Sector series. Uh, I just absolutely gobbled it up. Uh, I'm kind of a little bit behind on the current Green Lantern series, but I absolutely adore the fact that they created a storyline that immediately put Joe sort of in the center of the story because, you know, her Green Lantern ring is not connected to the central power battery. It is, you know, self-recharging, basically. And so in the current Green Lantern series, there's been an attack on Oa and the central power battery is blown up and all these Green Lanterns die or are stranded out in space and have to, you know, contend without their rings. And here's Joe returning to Oa and her ring is still working. She basically slides in a leadership role and is kind of trying to, to hold the Green Lantern core together. And there's a fantastic scene in the first few issues of the series where she actually um, has to deal with longtime Hal Jordan villain Sinestro. And she just does not put up with his crap. It is such a good scene. And just it speaks so well of this character who is so strong and tough and funny and and just like everything that you would hope a, a superhero character would be, she's really in every way, shape, or form to me the perfect lead of a Green Lantern story. And any time that this character will be in the center of the action is when I want to be there. Like I would love to see her in a, in like a Justice League lineup, for example. Like she is to me the quintessential Green Lantern. I absolutely adore her. Yeah, I'm dying to know more about this character. I still have not had the chance to go and read the rest of Far Sector. I read the first issue and absolutely adored it. Um, I I have all of them sitting on my shelf. I just haven't had the time to go read that. Um, And I believe even in the Future State, she's the Green Lantern in the Future State books, right? That's That's what I gathered. I was not... I was not horribly uh, enthusiastic with reading the future state books just because um, those sorts of things don't have a good track record at DC. They did something similar where they flashed forward to the, to a dystopian style future a few years ago in the, during their new 52 era. And it was probably one of the most obnoxious stories ever. And even in future state, they did some really weird crap by turning like Wally West flash into some kind of weird, crazy villain. So, you know, I'm I'm always weary of these flash forwards, but uh, having her on a, on a future Justice League, not not that I can get behind. Yeah, so I'm I'm just dying to see more from this character, and and the the fact that it's it's always refreshing when a new character is truly like compact, like complex and like really it just hits it out of the park because like it's something new and undiscovered and and seeing them flex uh seeing her flex right in this new green lanterns run is is so promising so i'm definitely gonna have to check this out yeah it's just i i cannot speak highly enough of far sector 
I, I just can't. It's it's a masterpiece in my book. And any fan of DC Comics, any fan of good science fiction should read this darn book. It's just so, so very good. What what a great, great 12-issue maxi series. Just so, so fantastic, Chris. All right, so who is your second favorite new character that you've encountered? Okay, so uh, as as you all full and well know, I have a very complicated fandom and relationship with Star Wars. Like it's something that at my core I love, but then any time that I get too excited about it, the fandom, the fandom menace just strikes again. Um, and, and so one of the things that I've really, really enjoyed over the past few weeks is getting caught up on this new era of Star Wars comics, the High Republic, and my favorite character far and away is the main protagonist. And that's uh, Jedi Knight Keeve Trennis. Um, she has got like this, she's got a little Han Solo, like lovable scoundrel to her. Like as, as a Jedi Knight, um, formerly a Padawan, her Jedi master that trained her as a Padawan, Skier, I hope I'm saying that right. Skier is a Trandoshan. A Trandoshan Trandoshan Jedi Master, just the notion of that is just awesome. So I love that, you know, the the Rise of Skywalker, as we've talked about so many different times, left me really, really cold with where to go from here with Star Wars. The Mandalorian's done a lot of help um, kind of reviving that love, but at the same time, it feels kind of limited. Um, But this High Republic stuff has really, really been fun and imaginative and bright and exciting and so keith trennis is really exciting to see as a main character who's got a foul mouth um she accidentally curses when she's speaking to like the jedi council and stuff and um she's got like a heart of gold and like goes against what um her superiors tell her to do because she thinks it's the next right thing to do and just seeing her adventures um, in this new and imaginative world, working alongside the Hut cartels in an unlikely partnership has really been fun. So um, probably a future nerd commendation coming very soon is these High Republic comics and Keith Trennis is probably the main reason for that. Yeah, I have not touched any uh, of these the High Republic era. I've been hearing a, a lot of good stuff about the comics and, and the novels and that it's sort of, uh, you know, is reviving Star Wars for a lot of people. Um, I guess I just have a little kind of weird taste in my mouth about the Jedi Order, particularly after the prequels, about how they're sort of been uh, portrayed. It's very much a a deeply flawed order and not nearly what you kind of were expecting Mm -hmm. when you were watching the original uh, trilogy of movies. You know, when when Luke throws his, you know, lightsaber from him in Return of the Jedi and looks at... uh, you know, looks at the emperor and says, I'm a Jedi like my father before me. And you're like, yay. And then you realize the Jedi were a bunch of morons who, uh, <laughs> you know, were blind to the rise of the dark side and all that. And you're like, well, maybe not yay. Um, yeah. And then you see the, and then you see the last Jedi and then you're like, oh, 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 he messed up uh, his Jedi order too. So definitely not yay. So I don't know. The whole Jedi thing has left kind of a weird taste in my mouth. I'm hoping that eventually I'm able to dive into this and see, I don't know, some kind of, um, you know, new spark to the idea of a Jedi Order because I think that if you look at the Skywalker saga, the whole nine movie cycle mm-hmm. as a whole, the Jedi don't exactly come across very well. No, and I I have I share those same trepidations. Um, even now as I'm reading this, 
But I will say, like, contextually, and, and this is what they're marketing it as, is it's the Jedi at their strongest in their heyday when they were clicking on all cylinders. Um, and what we saw in the prequels was just, like, those last wet farts when you're on hospice care, I guess. Um, for lack of a better analogy, that kind of seems dark, but... Um, yeah. But it really has been has been fun to see. It's I think it's what, like I said earlier, um, with um, like just being so disappointed in something, is all that excitement about this like new and imaginative direction that the prequels gave for me. I think what was what makes me so frustrated with them is like you have this open world in this open box to imagine things with and you kind of regress to the least imaginative things um and so this is kind of scratching that itch of what i wanted the prequels to be yeah see now that that gives me a little bit of hope that this is actually you know something of quality i'll definitely have to check it out yeah there's also a companion series that i haven't tapped into yet from idw that um that is like the adventures series. So that's a completely different one, but features a lot of the same characters. So I'm excited to check that one out too. All right, Dave, your next character has been around for quite a while. So I'm interested to hear your uh, encounters with them. Yeah. So I think the short version is that I've not had a whole lot of encounters with uh, the 616 version of Jessica drew spider woman over the years. Um, I was naturally kind of, you know, aware of the existence of this character. Um, but as, as far as like reading, you know, a solo series or seeing her in any kind of team setting, not really. Um, occasionally I would read Spider-Man and she'd pop up, you know, but, but for the most part, I wasn't really familiar with the character, what she's all about, what her history is. And then I decided to kind of get into the whole uh, Bendis Avengers era and, you know, trying to read as much of that as possible and get kind of a sense for the impact that Bendis had on on the Avengers as a team. And obviously she featured extremely prominently there. Um, ultimately, uh, I hope this is not a spoiler for anybody listening, but ultimately the, the Jessica Drew that's introduced at the beginning of that series is revealed to be a scroll and the real one gets reintroduced and she has some trauma because she's been kidnapped by scrolls for this whole time. And that's the whole thing. Um, but, you know, spinning sort of out of that era of Avengers, uh, I decided to, you know, get to know her a little better. So I decided to read uh, a mini series where Bendis kind of you know, streamlined her origin. And then she got a, a short lived solo series that was also written by Bendis and had uh, art by, uh, a frequent collaborator of his, Alex Maleev, who just uh, does this incredibly moody and very, very cool artwork. And although the series only lasted for, I think, seven issues, um, it, it kind of gave me a, a taste for more. So then I jumped into her next solo series. And I'm about halfway through that one where she uh, kind of ditches the skin-tight outfit and goes with sort of a more practical sort of leather jacket look. Um, and she's working with uh, with Ben Urich, the reporter, and, and and trying to like you know help the common people and you know look at the small picture instead of always looking at the big picture like she did with the Avengers. And and as I sort of you know read more and more about this character, I have to say I just I really really like her. There is there's something there that I you know didn't expect. Um, there's a depth. There's a there's a toughness. I mean, you know, the the way the character kind of has been on both the the, the side of good and the side of evil, working for Hydra for a while. Um, 
how she worked, you know, for for Shield for a while for Nick Fury, and she has all this this spy experience and this combat experience, and she's worked as a private detective, and there's all these these interesting threads that come together in this character. Um, I'm I'm actually quite impressed, and so I've decided I'm going to continue reading. Uh, all of her solo stuff and just, you know, keep trying to get a better sense for this character. I know that there is a, a, a new solo series that's running right now. I'm not quite there yet, but I hear good things about it as well. So here's a character that, you know, basically was, from my understanding, sort of a throwaway character when she was first introduced just to kind of secure the trademark for Spider-Woman. But uh, over time, I think creators have really done something unique and interesting with her. and I'm And I'm very, very excited to finally... You know, after all these years of being a fan of Spider-Man to actually get to know Spider-Woman. Yeah, it really is funny. And if you want like a crazy behind the scenes history, go look up the, you know, the history of the origins of uh, of Spider-Woman and just the, the mad dash to get the copyright. Uh, it's really crazy. So but at the same time, I think it kind of gave you know subsequent creators like uh you know some 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 leeway and some some autonomy to kind of go crazy and and kind of write their own story if you will so um yeah i don't have a whole lot of exposure to this character but i've heard great things about the pacheco and perez run so um i'm I'm definitely gonna have to check that one out too all right krista brings us to your third and final new character okay so i don't have a lot of depth on this character i am watching young justice for the first time i'm still in season one i want to say i'm about like episode 15 but i already know that i absolutely love caldur calderom aqualad whatever you want to call him i call him amazing I love this character. In fact, he is about the only character that I can stand on this show. Um, a couple of my friends um, have insisted that I have to watch Young Justice, so I'm watching it slowly but surely. And part of the reason that it's been kind of a lull is because Caldur is the only one that has any kind of common sense. Um, I love the idea of having um, you know, Martian Manhunter's niece, Miss Martian, uh, I love the idea of having her love Martian Manhunter as a character. His niece is a very Pollyanna girl, very like, oh no, what's going on? Her power set's great, but she's completely clueless. Sorry. Um, I'm I'm 100% sure that this Superboy, what is his name? Connor? Connor Kent? I'm, I'm 100% sure this clone of Superman uh, stormed the Capitol on January 6th. He is giving very much, he's giving very much um, fake military boy. I, I can't stand him. He's such a meathead. He's such a doofus. I hope he gets better. Um, Kid Flash needs to have his molecules rearranged in his face. Um, and I'm talking about by my fists because he is the whiniest little twerp. And he thinks he's awesome, but he is so not. Um, Robin's okay, I guess. I think this is the Tim Drake version of the character. He's okay. Um, And then uh, I ride with Artemis. Artemis is cool. Artemis is great. But Kaldur and this, I love that he is this reluctant leader. um, And he leads with quiet strength. And all the while, you have all these other noisy personalities that really think they are the stuff, but he's the only one that has it all together. And so watching his development and watching his history and just 
the Atlantis aspect is much more fascinating. I love Kaldur, and I know that there's been some hems and haws about seasons three and four. I already know that going forward. I don't know really any spoilers, really. I just know that people aren't as crazy about the newer stuff, but I'm here for Kaldur, and that's the only reason I'm showing up. So I will first of all echo uh, your love of this character. If only they could have done, you know, done him justice when they tried to introduce him in the comic books back in the day. Because let me tell you, they 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 didn't. Um, this is probably the best and fully most fully realized version of this character. And if you like him in Young Justice, I'm sad to say that there's really, unless something has changed and I missed it completely, there is no other place to get this character. This well written uh, does not. Um, exist in the comic books regrettably yeah however i will say i will say my friends are my friends are going wild about jackson hyde so i really need to dive into these pun intended dive into these aquaman aquaman books because i've heard nothing but great things about them yeah yeah and and jackson hyde is a very cool character but not not the same character as what you're seeing here obviously um as far as Young Justice goes, I, I feel like I have to step up and defend the show a little bit, <laughs> um, because Kid Kid Flash, the way he's uh, portrayed here, is very much in line with, um, you know, a, a young Flash who is uh, a little full of himself. It's a, a little bit inspired, I think, of, from the Impulse character. Um, he's supposed to be in that position because one of the cool things about the show is that he grows a lot over the course of the show. And I think you can say that for many of the characters, they're all in some extent, deeply flawed. Kaldur comes out as sort of the coolest character out of the get go. Whereas the other characters have a much further distance to travel in their growth. So as you're watching the show, I think Kaldur is, is at a consistent level of, of coolness. Whereas all the other characters go through big changes as they move forward. I'm assuming you have not seen the Miss Martian episode where you get more about her background yet. Not yet. And where, where where her character comes from and why she acts the way she does. Man, I'm telling you, when you see that episode, it's going to completely change the way you view her. It's it's very, very interesting how she built that version of herself and why she did it. Because that's not that's not quite the true Miss Martian. Um there's, there is a complexity there that comes along as the show progresses that I think you're going to very much appreciate. But one of the things ultimately that always happens is that you can't start those characters off fully formed sometimes right. when you're trying to do long form storytelling like right. that. So they kind of dump them in like a really bad spot. I will say though that uh, this version of Connor Kent Superboy is probably by, by far my least favorite. I, and I write for that character. I always have, even when he was first introduced uh, in the comic books after the death of Superman storyline in the 90s, running around in a leather jacket, jacket and all that and thinking he's the coolest thing ever. He was just a very neat character and also went through a tremendous amount of growth in the comic books. Um, but, but this character never quite clicked for me as well. Um, I, I don't think the writing was quite there when it comes to the Superboy character. And and just for correction's sake, believe it or not, the Robin uh, in in Young Justice is in fact actually uh, Dick Grayson, uh, and you're oh. going to see him become and you're going to see him become Nightwing uh, when they start jumping forward in time a little bit, and all the characters start getting older. So it is it is in fact Dick Grayson, and you will see a Tim Drake Robin uh, later. He he also gets introduced along with Batgirl and several other ancillary characters from the Bat Universe. But that is Dick Grayson, believe it or not. <laughs> 
Okay, because like when she started dating Superboy, I was like, of course, this is every late 90s, early 2000s teen drama where the cheerleader starts dating the meathead and he's really not that bad once you get to know him type of trope. Um, <laughs> oh, oh, you're, you're going to start, and, and this is maybe putting the cart before the horse, but there's a period in Young Justice where you start wondering uh, if Superboy isn't the less meatheady uh person in that relationship <laughs> like like miss martian uh there's a darkness there that you have not encountered yet my friend <laughs> i will say that rob lowe as captain marvel slash shazam is literally one of my favorite parts of season one. Oh, easily easily that portrayal is absolutely fantastic <laughs> all right that wraps up our byword big talk who are your favorite new characters who have you been uh reading along with uh watching alongside that just has captured your heart over the past year be sure to hit us up on social media at nerd by word on twitter and instagram or individually that nerd dave that nerd chris respectively uh when we come back from this our final break we're coming at you with the previously promised nerd commendations All right, we are back, Dave, with our favorite segment. We know it as... Now, speaking of carts being put before a horse, we kind of spoiled this one already, but oh well. Yeah, I'm, I don't feel bad about this. Uh, I mentioned that I'm a big fan now of, of Kate Spencer Manhunter, so it would be... Uh, obviously not surprising when I sit here and tell you that I want to nerd commend Manhunter uh, Volume 3, which uh, consists of 38 issues, uh, all written by Mark Andreco, uh, and of course art for a huge chunk of the series, really the bulk of it by Jesus Saez. Uh, look, man, this is from an era of DC Comics uh, where, where things were, you know, just a little bit different. We have, a, you know, the old DC logo that was, you know, predominant in, in the early 2000s. And for me, that era holds a special place in my heart. There was very, very cool stuff going on. We're talking about, you know, the era of, of Infinite Crisis, the era of one year later. Uh, it's just a very, very cool little era in DC history. And to think that as many comic books as I was reading from DC at the time, that Manhunter slipped past me the way it did, is, is totally, like, I feel personally responsible for the fact that this series didn't last longer. Like, <laughs> people like me, who would have adored this series, didn't even think to give it a chance. And that is just, that's so typical. We always cling to, like, the big names. And when there's something new and interesting introduced, we we just, you know, we take a step back from it. And we don't want to really give it a chance. And I really should have given Manhunter a chance, because it is absolutely fantastic. So the series follows... Kate Spencer, a uh, district attorney in L.A. who gets sick and tired of, uh, um, you know, all these supervillains, you know, getting off the hook. So she cobbles together an outfit and equipment from a uh, evidence locker and starts going after supervillains. And as I mentioned earlier in the show, she's incredibly tough. She's fascinating. She's a fully formed adult woman with, you know, an ex-husband and a kid she's trying to, you know, co-parent and there's all sorts of interesting stuff going on with her you know she's a chain smoker and tries to stop smoking constantly and you have this wonderful uh, juxtaposition between you know courtroom drama and and really hard-hitting superheroics um 
And so, you know, you, you think on the one hand, it sounds a little bit daredevilish or something, but I think the fact that for a good chunk of this, she's a DA, um, it makes it makes the whole thing feel very, very different. Also, the kind of cases she deals with are um, fascinating. Uh, there's a wonderful case about halfway through the series where Wonder Woman is actually being uh, put on trial for the murder of Max Lord, uh, which is something that happened in the lead up to Infinite Crisis. And so there's this whole grand jury proceeding going on about whether she's going to be indicted or not. And she, uh, Wonder Woman gets Kate Spencer, actually, to represent her. And you get these very, very cool interactions between between Kate and Wonder Woman and, and Kate and Batman. And these are all characters that, that you see in, through a very different lens because, you know, she's a street-level hero who's never really encountered any of these people. You know, Wonder Woman is a goddess to her and Batman is a myth. And and so her interactions with them are absolutely fascinating. Um, and right now I'm kind of reaching the end of the series. I'm in on issue like 32 out of 38, I think. And she just encountered the new Blue Beetle as she is investigating a series of murders right across the border in Mexico where some 400 women have disappeared. And she's trying to figure out why these women are disappearing. Uh, and she teams up with Blue Beetle for that one. And it's just, it's it's not just a really cool entry sort of in the DC universe, but uh, it's just a fantastic character that you're following with this show. I'm also a really, really big fan of, of some of the ancillary stuff that they do. There's a cool storyline where all the previous people who have been, uh, you know, man hunters are suddenly being hunted themselves and Kate is sort of the end of the line, the newest and the last Manhunter, and is she going to be able to figure out who's trying to kill all Manhunters? Um, there's just really, really cool stuff in this uh, comic book, and it pains me. It pains me that the sucker only lasted 38 issues. There is something here, uh, and it deserved to last longer. Yeah, I mean, like Blue Beetle, like you got you got me in. I I, I love the Jaime Reyes. Like it had its warts with some of the. Some of the Spanish in there made me cringe, but I, I love that run so much when we did that for homework a while back. So I love that character. I'm super excited to see them come up on the big screen. But um, if they're popping up here, that 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 is probably and, and, and detective stuff. I mean, like, you know that you and I both love detective stories. Shouts to Colombo. Um, and, and anytime you get some stuff like that, uh, I'm all in. Yeah, I'm I'm just all about this this series right now. It kind of got its hooks in me. I really, you know, as as you know, I nerd commended a few weeks ago the Triangle Era of Superman, and my entire intention was to use DC Universe uh, Infinite to just reread the entire Triangle Era. And I got a little sidetracked with Manhunter. I will freely admit, <laughs> I've been reading Manhunter pretty much every evening before I go to bed right now, because that series has just got its hooks in me. All right, Chris, what is your nerd commendation for this week? Well, I teased it before, but um, if you like what we talked about with Suraya Kadir, aka Dust or Congregation, then I highly nerd commend New X-Men Volume 2, more affectionately known by us super fans as Academy X Era. Um, so, and I've talked about this before when I nerd commended Generation X. Every generation... Uh, pun intended, of X-Men fans kind of has their book that was the quintessential book when they were, you know, growing up. If you're a kid of the 70s, it's, you know, the Claremont X-Men books. If you're an 80s child, then it's, you know, the the New Mutants and that team. If you're a 90s kid, then it is, um, you know, Generation X. And if you're a 2000s kid, it's the Academy X era. 
And so I'm kind of in between the 90s and 2000s. This was this this particular volume ran from 2004 to 2008. So the 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 middle to latter half of my high school years and then the the start of my college years was when this was coming out. So um, it was kind of fun going back at a time machine and thinking about like what was going on in the world when this book, you know, was was current. Um, and so it it takes a lot of the characters that were introduced in volume one in Grant Morrison's run. And now these kids are at school um, and it really just focuses on their stories. And it really has a fascinating you know, cast of characters. In addition to Dust, um, we have Elixir, Josh Foley, Icarus, Jay Guthrie, um, Prodigy, um, David Elaine, Serge, Noriko Ashida. She's the worst. Serge is awful. She's the worst. We all hate Serge. Wallflower, Lori Collins, Wind Dancer, Sophia Montega. She's perfect, Your Honor. Wither, Kevin Ford. I mean, there's just so many characters. Um, there's Anol. There's. Uh, rock slide hellion is great so it's just like this whole it's 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 like um it's really interesting too it's like maybe it's the teacher in me i love seeing kids thriving i love teen books and even though that these characters are probably in their late teens early 20s now um just seeing them grow up and having these these you know life-changing multiple moments this famously took place during the era of the decimation and the events that spilled out of um, house of m and the depowering and the eradication of the majority of the mutant population with only 198 mutants being left on the face of the earth so you see the after effects of that Um, so there are two markedly different um creative teams on this on the first um on the first, about the first half of this book, um, you see the husband and wife writing team of Nuncio de Philippus and Christina Weir. Um, and it is very much that bubblegum poppy teenage book where you have these kids that are from different backgrounds, different power sets in this, in this case, thrust into the same living spaces. They have to dorm. They have to, they have to bunk up with roommates that are completely different from them. They don't always get along. Um, Serge is super racist and Islamophobic towards dust. She's the worst. We hate her. Um, and <laughs> it, it is, it's like, it's really bad. It's really cringy. And it's very, it's very much of its time. You know, think back to where we were in 2004 with the fear coming out of 9-11. And so the, the script and the words that are given to Serge are very, um, very much of that time. But if you're willing to look past that, there are some really great character moments and some bonding moments. Um, there's a beautiful moment between um, Soraya and Jay Guthrie, um, who we previously met in Chuck Austin's She Lies with Angels, one of the worst comic books that I've ever read, uh, the Redneck Romeo and Juliet, as I call it. Um, but he's from the hills of Kentucky. The, if, if you know anything about the X-Men, the Guthrie's, Mama Guthrie, she is a human, but she makes mutant babies. She has a bunch of babies, and they are all mutants. So she is probably one of the greatest allies that mutantdom has because she makes a bunch of mutant babies. So Jay comes from the hills of Kentucky, and you think, 
How, what are his interactions going to be with this devout Muslim woman from Afghanistan, from the Middle East? What is that going to look like? And it's this very respectful, beautiful um, exchange where he is nervous because he doesn't want to offend her, but he wants to have a deeper friendship and possibly relationship. There's a will they won't they. There's beautiful exchanges between Soraya and um, his mother, Mama Guthrie. Um, and then after the events of of House of M, it takes a markedly different turn. And that teeny bopper teenage drama type stuff is gone. And it is straight on trauma train, baby. Everybody's dying left and right. There's only 198 mutants worldwide. Half the kids are depowered, so they're dealing with that trauma. And then you're getting targeted by the purifiers led by William Stryker. And it is just an action packed. Uh, and that is written by the dynamic duo of Craig Kyle and Christopher Yost. So if you love trauma and you love action packed and kids fighting for their lives, then definitely check out the second part of it. But as a whole, I've really come to fall in love with a lot of these characters, particularly Soraya, particularly Hellion. Hellion starts off with this character as this like, snooty kid he thinks he's better than everybody he's a bit of an asshole but then like after the events of house of m and the decimation he's forced to be this team leader and he doesn't know what to do with this new role um and so he's really come to be an endearing character to me um and then sophia montego wind dancer she's just gorgeous she's wonderful she's everything um so i love this era of comics thank you to my friends for recommending it to me al Caleb, I love you. And um, New X-Men Volume 2, a.k.a. Academy X. Go read it. It's wonderful. Yeah, so this is definitely a little bit off the beaten path for me. It's sort of a deep-cut X-Men comic, apparently. And uh, I think the fact that it doesn't follow any of the real major big players in the X-Men franchise might be a plus for me. Yeah. I may actually, I may actually go ahead and give this one a, a try because... You know, getting away from from the never ending gene of it all, I think may be yeah. the right thing for me. So, yes, a, a side book like this might be just up my alley, Chris. And and I wanted to spin a whole episode out of this, Dave, but you famously said I can't think of three times that I was wrong. But the only reason that I wanted this episode <laughs> was that I was so wrong about Emma Frost, and I'm so sorry. I love her. She's one of my all time favorite characters now, and that's what happens when you read a book by a horrible individual like Joss Whedon. And no wonder that I didn't like her because that was one of my first samplings. And when you look at the history of someone like Joss Whedon, oh, no wonder he wrote her that way. And so if you're looking for the real Emma Frost as this headmistress, she's just a baddie, Dave, and you're going to love her in this. She's a teacher, she's a mentor, and she wields that power all for the children. She is all about these kids and seeing her stand up to the Avengers in the best interest of these children to save their lives. It is absolutely inspirational. And I love Emma. Now definitely going to have to give, to give this one a chance now, man. All right. That wraps up another episode of the nerd Byword podcast. Where else are you going to hear me ramble about mutants for 45 minutes on end? Um, if you like what you hear, <laughs> be sure to hit that subscribe and like button. Give us a five-star rating and review on your podcast app of choice, whether that is Apple podcast, Spotify, tune in radio, Amazon, what have you, or nerdbyword.com. And if you want to talk to us about some of our 
takes and opinions, please find us on social media. We are on Twitter and Instagram at NerdByWord and individually at ThatNerdDave and at ThatNerdChris. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd By Word is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.